You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little bitch. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I got my first one-star review on Apple Podcasts, and I knew this day would come. Eventually, it comes for everybody, because there's always that one person or series of people who feel powerful and important giving somebody a one-star review. But I think that means I've, like, arrived, right? Like, somebody was annoyed enough by the sound of my voice and what I'm doing to be like, one-star! Didn't even leave a review, so I don't even know, like, what was so egregious about me. I know what's egregious about me. I'm going, like I said, I'm dealing with that in therapy. But there is a little part of me that's curious as to, you know, just what the problem with me was. Don't, don't leave reviews and tell me. I, I, I'm good. I'm probably good. I forgot how the internet works briefly there. That being said, (laughs) if you listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and based on my analytics, quite a lot of you do, please rate, review, and subscribe for me. Rating preferably higher than the one or the two or the three or the four. Yeah, I need a five. I need some fivers. That would be very much appreciated. Thanks in advance. You don't even have to leave a review. Just five and you're done. Well, I had two holiday parties to contend with this week for work, and I got to go to the premiere of Megan this week, not a brag, just a thing that I got to do through work. So once again, I did not get to see a non-work movie. It is an unfortunate byproduct of working in entertainment. You're helping make the movies and the other things, which is really, 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 really cool. But the consequence of that is that you have no time to go see movies and other entertainment. I do. I watch pretty much all of my television now by multitasking. But if you'd like to really be bummed out, I did go see She Said, which is the film about the Weinstein expose from the New York Times a few years ago that kicked off the Me Too movement. It's heavy as hell, but I really liked it. Do you like how I'm reviewing these movies without actually reviewing these movies? Loophole. All right. It's the last episode of the year, and that means a quick look back on this year in film. In this episode, I'm going to be looking back on some of the biggest movie or movie adjacent news, ponder this year's award contenders, and whatever else I decide to throw in here. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. So I still haven't figured out a format for this or how I should be doing it. I keep a list every year and I was like, I don't want to talk about all this. A lot of it's like not fun to talk about. So since there were a few high profile entertainment things that happened, I picked a few and gave a little recap of some of them throughout this episode. Maybe next year I'll actually come up with a concrete format for this. But until then, Wild West. 
As always, we'll start with award season. The Golden Globes were put on a timeout after reports of corruption and racial disparity were made widely public. As a result, NBC refused to air the ceremony this year, and the awards were given out in private without the winners knowing. It was, I believe it was, it was released in like a press release. Like that's how the winners found out. Next year, however, it will air on NBC once more. At the Oscars, CODA became the first motion picture produced by a streamer to win Best Picture. The film was distributed by Apple Studios, and I certainly didn't think Apple would be the first streamer to win an Oscar. I don't think anybody did. I think we just all assumed it was probably going to be Netflix or maybe even Amazon because it's Amazon. But that just goes to show how much the industry reviles Netflix for breaking entertainment and forcing all their hands into the streaming business. Another first from that night included Tony Kotzer becoming the first deaf man to win an acting Oscar. The only other deaf performer to ever take home an Oscar was his CODA co-star Marley Matlin, who won Best Actress for 1986's Children of a Lesser God. But you might not remember Kotzer's accomplishments because of one particular event from the 94th Academy Awards pretty much overshadowing anything. That was, of course, the removal of eight awards from the main broadcast, of course. Why? What were you guys thinking of? This year, despite previous attempts at this receiving negative press and outcry from industry members, animated short, documentary short subject, film editing, live action short, makeup and hairstyling, original score, production design, and sound were all given out during commercial breaks instead of during the main telecast, and then their speeches were edited down and showed later in the broadcast. This was an attempt to cut down on the show's runtime, because, yeah, that's the major problem with the Oscars. Rumor has it the decision was made due to pressure from ABC executives, who had originally wanted 12 categories cut from the main broadcast, under the possible penalty of not airing the ceremony at all. More than 70 film professionals, in a letter to the show's producers, tried to get the decision reversed as, in their opinion, doing this was a continuation of the notion that these creatives were essentially, quote, second-class citizens. In protest, Jessica Chastain skipped press at the ceremony as the film she was nominated for, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, was nominated for, and won, Makeup and Hairstyling. Two members of the sound branch, Tony Fleischman and Peter Kurland, also resigned from the Academy in protest. It was announced in the last couple of weeks that next year, all 23 categories will be presented live. Then, of course, came that one other thing that happened. You, you probably don't even remember it. During his introduction for Best Documentary Feature, comedian Chris Rock made a joke about actress Jada Pinkett Smith's bald head by stating that he couldn't wait to see her work in G.I. Jane 2. Clearly not amused, the actress rolled her eyes as her husband, Best Actor nominee for King Richard, Will Smith, laughed at the joke. If you don't know, Pinkett has alopecia and has long been a vocal member of that community, so yeah, the joke was a little insensitive, but comedian told a haha, in my opinion. About 5-10 seconds after the joke was made, Will Smith sauntered up to Rock and promptly slapped him across the face before returning to his seat from which he yelled at Rock, quote, Keep my wife's name out of your effing mouth several times. I think I mentioned what I was doing during the Oscars this past year, but if I didn't, I was at an event at the Academy Museum and it actually cut our feed when he actually like walked up and hit him. The feed cut back in with like the end of Will Smith yelling at, at Chris Rock. So naturally everyone like took to Twitter because Twitter was still seven-ish months away from becoming a dumpster fire. And of course what happened spread through that room immediately. Like you could hear it just through the tinny speakers just all across the room as everyone was trying to figure out what the hell happened. 
Later in the evening, Smith won for Best Actor, and during his speech, through tears, he claimed that he was just protecting his family, amongst other things. You know, he did that by making a, a whole scene. In fact, him slapping Rock pretty much made a joke that everyone would have probably forgotten by the following morning. Probably one of the most repeated of any Oscar ceremony in history. I felt like you couldn't escape that joke for like two weeks after. And I don't remember that happening. I've been watching the Oscars, I think, for like 25 years every year. I do not remember like one specific joke carrying that much weight for weeks and weeks and weeks, except for maybe Seth MacFarlane's We Saw Your Boobs. Like, that's the only one that comes to mind. But I could be wrong, but I don't I don't think I am. Public reaction to the slap was swift, and within days, the Academy had opened an internal review going over how the incident was handled. Notably, why was Smith allowed to stay after he assaulted someone in front of millions of people? There was never a concrete answer to this, and mostly it just sounded like it boiled down to there was no protocol, and nobody knew how to kick one of the most famous men in the world out of what until then was gearing up to be one of the biggest nights of his career. And it was on two fronts, but one definitely not what he'd expected. Smith issued an apology the following day, referring to his behavior as, quote, unacceptable and inexcusable. To Rock, he said, quote, I would like to publicly apologize to you. I was out of line and I was wrong. I am embarrassed and my actions were not indicative of the man I want to be. There is no place for violence in a world of love and kindness. Four months after this statement, Smith posted a YouTube video in which he addressed the incident again and apologized once more to Rock, Rock's mother, Rock's brother, who was also a comedian and had been very vocal about the incident, musician-producer Questlove, whose win shortly after the slap was majorly overshadowed, so much so that Jimmy Fallon... The show on which Questlove is the band leader gave him some time the following evening to kind of say say more of a speech, or at least one that was kind of going to stick into people's heads a little bit more. Smith also apologized to the other Oscar winners and finally to his wife, saying he was, quote, deeply remorseful for his actions. Smith was ultimately banned from the Oscars and any events surrounding them for the next 10 years, effective April 8th, 2022. He also resigned from the Academy, which he had been a member of for over 20 years. The most recent developments on this front, as the public at large have seemed to neither forgive nor forget what happened, saw Smith continuing to apologize, asking audience members not to punish the people who worked so hard on his next film, Emancipation, by not seeing it. The film is not tracking well, and the slap has been cited as part of the reason, but it could also possibly have something to do with the early atrocious reviews it's gotten. Whatever the case, it seems like Smith's actions will carry a heavy toll for the time being. Not long after the Oscars, the merger of Warner Brothers and Discovery began official operations on April 4th, 2022. A lot of shakeups and controversial decisions were announced not long after, which is not super unusual when a merger at this level happens. The new regime would rather make the things they want over what their predecessors had greenlit, but none of these decisions received more public backlash than the cancellation of Batgirl. In August, Warner Brothers Discovery announced that it no longer planned to release Batgirl at all, despite having previously slated the $70 million film to premiere on HBO Max. Insider reports stated that this decision was made because the film wasn't, quote, working 
and was also canceled because new CEO of Warner Brothers Discovery, David Zaslav, wanted DC's focus to be on big theatrical releases, not streaming shows or films. There were also reports of the test screenings going horrendously, but there have also been conflicting reports that it tested about as well as Black Adam did. The main difference between the two being, of course, that the lead of Black Adam is one of the biggest actors in Hollywood, and Batgirl had a relative newcomer. The likely reason Batgirl got the axe was a financial one. The company's transition has been anything but smooth, and a $70 million tax write-off probably looked real tantalizing. Unfortunately, that means we'll likely never get to see Batgirl, which was one of the DC films I actually wanted to see. And of course, there was even further outcry about Batgirl getting cancelled when the upcoming Flash film is still getting released, despite all of the insane illegal hijinks its star Ezra Miller has gotten busted doing as of late. My guess is this decision has less to do with Miller and more to do with the fact that Warner probably doesn't want to sully the relationship it has with the director of the Flash film, Andy Muschietti, whom, amongst other projects, made the two very well-performing IT films for Warner a few years back. They just lost Christopher Nolan. I doubt they want to lose Muschietti as well. While the studio has stated it wishes to maintain its relationship with the Batgirl directors, Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falah, as well as its star Leslie Grace, I'm guessing they're a tad wary given how much of their time they wasted. I certainly would be. Unless the studio changes its mind down the road, this decision has made Batgirl one of the most expensive canceled films ever. Let's just hope James Gunn and Peter Safran can turn things around for the flailing franchise. Another big film story of the year I chose to highlight is, of course, the Don't Worry Darling drama, which I admittedly ate up like popcorn in a in a movie theater. I felt it was just because it was like it reminded me of like high school theater drama. It's just like stereotypically it just felt like that more than like anything else. But yeah, I full disclosure, I I I did kind of morbidly enjoy it. I, I am ashamed to say it, but I was. Since it came out this year, I won't spoil the ending, but for what it's worth, I, I called the ending from a mile away. The original script was also way better, but what are you going to do? The script had been on what's known as The Blacklist, which despite the ominous origins of the name, is actually just a yearly release of the best unproduced screenplays in Hollywood. It was written by Carrie and Shane Van Dyke, who are the grandsons of Dick Van Dyke. And when Warner brought the script, it was reworked by Katie Silberman, whom had written the script for Booksmart, which had been Olivia Wilde's, the director of this film's directorial debut. Don't Worry Darling was one of the first films to go into production in Los Angeles during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, but before cameras had even rolled, there had been drama. It was reported that Shia LaBeouf was quote-unquote fired off of the film due to quote bad behavior, with Wilde stating that he was quote combative and therefore would not quote create a safe, trusting environment. While silent about Wilde's early claims about his departure, as she continued to make claims right before the film came out, LaBeouf decided to refute Wilde's claims, stating that he'd actually quit the film after not being able to prepare for the role the way he'd requested. None of the other actors, he claimed, were making time to rehearse. 
makes sense given the nature of the world at this time. So him quitting was probably for the best, but it doesn't look like he was fired. He proved his side of events further by providing a video of Wilde begging him to reconsider him leaving and that she would have this be a, quote, wake-up call for Miss Flo, referring to the lead of the film, Florence Pugh, who was probably the one not making herself available to rehearse based on, you know, content clues. Speaking of Pew and Wilde, there were rampant reports radiating from the set about conflicts between the actress and her director. The two reportedly had a, quote, screaming match on set, leading to an executive at Warner having to oversee a, quote, long negotiation process between Wilde, Pew, and the studio to figure out how much Pew would continue to be involved in the film, notably its promotion. These negotiations boiled down to Pew limiting the amount of press she would do for the film, including not attending the film's New York premiere. Scheduling conflicts with shooting the second Dune film in which Pew is starring were cited to excuse her absence. The screaming match and other issues were blamed on rumors about the timeline with Wilde's and the bus replacement Harry Styles as to when the romantic relationship started versus when Wilde left her longtime partner. And since Pew was a friend of both men, combined with other rumors involving her and Styles, this allegedly caused a good chunk of the tension between the two. Another series of allegations state that Wilde was so wrapped up in her ex-drama and her new romance that she was often absent from set and that Pew would be left to direct herself. Also, during the early promotion of the film at CinemaCon, Wilde was served custody papers dealing with her separation from said partner in front of thousands of people, which brings to question the security of CinemaCon more than anything else. On September 25th, 40 members of the film's crew issued a statement disputing all of these rumors of unprofessional behavior, stating that they were untrue. But like, (laughs) y'all... We got eyes, and it was incredibly obvious at the Venice premiere of this film that sh- that shit was tense between everybody. Some of it has to be true. Some, some, some went down. Speaking of Venice, there was the whole Pew not being at press calls, instead opting to stroll around her hotel drinking Aperol spritzes and posting the video to social media, while concurrent videos of her co-stars in press calls were being released. And of course, as I mentioned, that painfully awkward red carpet and the whole debacle as to whether or not Harry Styles spit on Chris Pine during the film screening. He didn't, by the way, but man, that was blown so spectacularly out of proportion. Ugh. But yeah. All of this drama wasn't helpful, and the reports of bad behavior on and offset didn't help the film's reviews. Everything affects film reviews, unfortunately, but the box office wasn't terrible, given the time we're living through. Historically, though, I don't think a lot of people are going to remember so much what the film was about, as much as the drama that occurred making and promoting it. So those were a few of the big news stories, but what did the box office look like? Since I do this wrap-up a bit early in the year, Spider-Man No Way Home actually ended up being the number one film last year when it was looking like two Chinese-produced films are going to take the top spots. This year, I'd be pretty surprised if we see anything do better than Top Gun Maverick. There is one, obviously, contender for that, but so help me God. Um... But yeah, Top Gun Maverick took in $1.4 billion worldwide, giving Tom Cruise, who turned 60 this year, the biggest hit of his career. Nine out of the 10 highest grossing films of the year were U.S. produced, or primarily U.S. produced anyway, and all 10 of these films were either sequels or established IPs. The Batman technically wasn't a sequel, but it's still Batman, and you know, that was that was the draw. 
Nostalgia wasn't a sure bet this year, however. Just look at the most recent Fantastic Beasts film. Between the film counting Ezra Miller amongst its cast and the decision to recast Johnny Depp due to, you know, that whole drama that I purposely am not mentioning in this episode, the film didn't stand a chance. Also, Lightyear tanked at Disney, despite the, you know, the other four doing very, very well. And one of the reasons cited for it not doing well was because... Chris Evans was the voice of the titular character, not Tim Allen. Also, nobody knew why this film was being made in the first place. The trailers were very vague. It, it just wasn't clear, like, what the hell this movie was supposed to be. And I've only watched half of it, admittedly, but it turns out it's supposed to be the movie that Andy, who's the kid with the toys, saw when he was a youth and became obsessed with, which led to, like, all the other four. So it's kind of like a prequel, but it also exists in the Toy Story universe, but it's, like, a sequel. It's confusing. Also, due to a portrayal of a homosexual couple in the film, the movie was banned from several countries, which, while that subplot was a step in the right direction in the name of representation, didn't help the movie financially. It's not always about that, but it's also about that. Another major problem? Nobody knew where the hell to watch this movie. Was it streaming? Was it in theaters? Where did the Pixar movies go now? Lightyear ended up getting as lost in the market as its titular character. And a lot of this, a lot of these failings was blamed on Bob Chappick, Disney's very unpopular CEO, who pretty much murdered the animated movies at the studio famous for making animated movies. He also stated in an interview that adults don't watch animated films, which has been a controversy for years. And the reason that animated movies are considered for children is in a large part because of Disney, because a lot of the releases, at least commercially, tend to be geared more towards a younger market. Even at the Oscars this year, a group of actresses whom had played Disney princesses in live adaptations of famous Disney animations, while getting ready to present Best Animated Film, referred to animated films as, quote, something kids enjoy and adults have to endure. After a rocky, nearly two-year period at the job, during which time Chappick was booed by Disney fans, cited a desire to begin producing R-rated Disney films, the final nail in his coffin was a quarterly earnings call last month in which he announced a desire for cost-cutting, which he later announced would be layoffs and a hiring freeze. According to reports, Chappick's handling of the call, during which time he talked up the success of the annual Halloween festivities in the parks, instead of explaining how to fix the $1.5 billion lost Disney Plus and the streaming had suffered that quarter, the board was pretty much done with him. Chappick was unceremoniously removed on November 20th, a move that reportedly blindsided not just Chappick, but several other higher-ups too. Apparently, this was like, need to know to the max. Chappick was replaced by the previous CEO, Bob Iger, whom left a week before the pandemic started, and people are optimistic for the time being that Iger can fix Disney. He did it once before, who's to say he can't do it again? Despite all this, the box office recovery is slowly happening, steadily for now. So we'll see what happens next year. The tricky thing is going to be content because I'm pretty sure all the studios are out of the shelved things from the pandemic. So there's going to probably be a deficit. Hopefully there won't be, but it's looking that way. The biggest problem at the moment is getting audiences to return to see the smaller films like Ticket to Paradise, Amsterdam, and The Unbearable Way of Massive Talent, the latter of which, while being one of my favorite films 
that came out this year. And and it got pretty good reviews, flopped at the box office. But it's something people are kind of like, they're kind of like weighing the pros and cons of like, do I want to go see it in the theater or just want to wait to stream it? So if you're wondering why everything being released in theaters right now is big budget chaos, it's because the mid-level movies haven't been bringing in audiences. So they're going to put into theaters the things that will make the money. Film is art, yes, but it is also a business. If you want to see artful, middle-sized films, you have to go see them in the theater. I cannot bring this point home enough. Like I said last week, yes, you can go see the big ones. I go see the big ones too. But you also have to see the little movies too. Otherwise, they're going to stop making them. They're going to just make more streaming crap. And nobody wants that. Just FYI, that's what it's going to take to see movies improve in quality. And now my favorite part. What's going to be our awards season lot this year? Based on some variety predictions and my own opinions, here's what to watch before the nominations start coming out because they're surely they're going to get they're going to get some attention. First, The Fablemans. It's got everything award voters love. It's a Spielberg film. It's about filmmaking. And it's nostalgic for a time where movies were still magical. This is a slam dunk. No brainer is getting a Best Picture nomination. I would be shocked if it didn't. Second, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. This has very much been the little film that could this year and has, at least in Los Angeles, become quite the cultural phenomenon. I'd be surprised if this didn't end up as a Best Picture contender. The only thing that might hurt it is the fact that it came out pretty early in this year and the memory of awards voters tends to be pretty short. Third, Tear. It may not get a Best Picture nom. I haven't gotten to see around to seeing it yet, unfortunately. But by all accounts, Kate Blanchett is a shoo-in for a Best Actress nomination from this film. It's also apparently amazing. I can't wait to see it. I just got to figure out how. I'm hoping it'll come back to theaters. It probably will, at least in LA. Fourth, Women Talking. This hasn't been released yet, but based on the cast and the trailers, this is Oscar bait personified. It appears to be about a series of assaults perpetrated on the women of an Amish community and this thing is like bursting at the seams with powerful performances, or at least it appears to be anyway. Fifth, The Woman King, which came out during another time I couldn't get to the theater, so I missed this one too. But by all accounts, this film is a banger. Again, if it doesn't get a Best Picture nomination, Viola is definitely getting an acting nomination. And then some honorable mentions. Those are like the top five I think are definitely going to be in there. Top Gun keeps coming up on these lists, and I'm sure it's going to get all manner of technical nominations. Of course it will. That's the kind of film it is. But I'm not so sure it's going to get a Best Picture nomination. Same thing goes for Elvis. I think Austin Butler, who played Elvis, will get a Best Actor nomination. Tom Hanks will get a Best Supporting Actor nomination. I'm pretty sure. But I don't think it drummed up enough buzz to get Best Picture, and it came out super early in the year. Also, I didn't think this movie was all that great, but you know, my opinion is does actually my opinion in this case doesn't matter at all. Just just another a podcast's opinion. And finally, other films you'll probably want to get on your radar. Glass Onion, the sequel to Knives Out. The Whale, which by all accounts showcases the triumphant return of Brendan Fraser, which I am all for. Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Till, Bones and All, and She Said. They're all expected to be on all these lists come award season. One notable omission I'm noticing from these lists is Babylon, which I've heard mixed info about. The film's director, Damien Chazelle, has more or less been a big Oscar bait director for his last three films, which were Whiplash, La La Land, and First Man, less so let First Man, but the other two for sure. When it comes 
to Babylon, I've heard that it's either incredible or trash and nowhere in between. It's about like 1920s Hollywood. So it stands to reason that it would be like made for, specifically for this this time of year. And the it, it's its absence is glaring. So I'm a little bit I'm a little bit wary. Admittedly, I'm more afraid of the film's three hour runtime. It's longer than uh, Avengers Head Game than the fact that it may be terrible. But I love movies about Hollywood, so I'm probably going to see it in theaters. God help me. I will. I'll let you know what happens. Also, Avatar showed up on a couple of these lists. And so help me, God, y'all. If you make that bigger than the other one, I'm going to be furious. I don't care if it's good. I just I can't. I can't do another three hour blue people movie. I'm so tired. I'm so tired of sequels. Before we wrap this up, I wanted to answer a couple of questions that were sent in this year. Do I remember anybody's name? No, of course not. I'm a disorganized mess when it comes to emails and the social media aspect of all of this. But I do have a good mind for to-do lists, so here's the answers to some questions y'all asked this year. The first one was a request to expand on what exactly post-horror is. Well, the term was coined by film scholar David Church in 2014, who regrets coining that term, by the way, in an attempt to describe a new style of film coming to the market that was classified by its slow pace, ominous mise-en-scene, dark themes, and more or less having an indie art film vibe compared to commercial horror films. These post-horror films tend to downplay familiar cliches, forcing audiences to just kind of sit in angst and dread, more so than anticipating something bad happening like a junk scare. These were not new elements to the horror genre, see Rosemary's Baby, but there has been an undeniable influx of these films into theaters over the last 10 years or so, widely thanks to production companies like A24 and Blumhouse. Post-horror films are essentially a challenge to the long-held norm that horror films are a lesser cinematic art form and are supposed to be quote fun more than arty well i can say one thing most of these movies are not fun to watch at all (laughs) i'm personally not the biggest elevated horror fan unless i know that's what i'm walking into i really really wish studios would stop marketing post-horror films like their run-of-the-mill horror movies and then i walk in and have to sit and wallow in dread for 90 minutes when i wanted to be entertained by jump scares stop tricking us we will go see them we just have to be mentally prepared to see them If you want to go into this subgenre more, examples of this emerging genre are It Follows, The Witch, The Babadook, Midsommar, Get Out, and Hereditary. Another person asked me about conflicting series of events when it comes to the Warrens and their quote-unquote investigations. It basically boils down to whose source you're using is the story you're getting. I guess this question came from another podcast who covered the Arnie Johnson case recently, and some of the facts were off compared to mine. I went more off the court docs that were available, and I listened to the podcast that I think it was two of you told me to listen to. And I'm not going to say which podcast it is because they are infinitely larger than mine, and I don't need to get, I don't need that trouble in my life. Um, but I also do listen to that podcast and I did a little bit of of looking into it and I'm guessing they probably use the Warren's book to recount the story a little bit more, which, you know, not super reliable. I don't know this for certain. I think they cited their sources. I did not listen. I started just picking apart going, no, that's not what the court says. That's not what the court document said. It could also be um, the first person um, account that Arnie and I'm blanking on the girlfriend's name gave during a Discovery Channel show. But again, they gave that they gave that interview many, many decades after the events happened. And they're one of the only people that is definitively like, yes, he was possessed by the devil. So, you know, again, not to be not to be the, you know, devil's advocate here, no pun intended. But, you know, I don't really trust their memories of an event of a traumatic event 30, 40 years after the fact. It's just it's it's not smart. 
Someone also asked for a less intense entertainment magazine than the trades, like the varieties or the um, Hollywood Reporter. I haven't read it cover to cover in a while, admittedly. But when I started dipping my toe into the industry, I started with Entertainment Weekly and went from there. It kind of helps you learn everybody's names. It's a little bit more like it's somewhere between like a people magazine and like a trade paper. It sits kind of right in the middle, maybe a little bit more toward people magazine, or at least it used to. But they got some pretty they or at least again, at least they used to have like some pretty decent reviewers in there. Um, The article are a little bit more like splashy, but if you want to dip your toe more into the business side of things, I would say go Entertainment Weekly until you got a little bit more of a grasp of the industry. It worked for me. That's all I'm saying. Finally, somebody asked me why there are so many streamers, and I'm assuming this was more of a cheeky question, and the short answer is, it's Netflix's fault. Their streaming model broke the industry and forced the other studios to make their own streaming content and services in an attempt to basically just stay relevant and modern. But now, it's becoming apparent that the streaming model is not a financially stable one, so the next few years will be interesting. (laughs) There was no way to know just how well Netflix was doing because they never really showed their analytics. They just said, hey, things are good over here look at all the things we're doing but it turns out that likely wasn't the case and while they did make a lot of things they didn't get a lot of money from them i want to do an episode about the history of the streaming wars down the line and how it affected hollywood and movie theaters and all that stuff but it doesn't feel like quite the time yet i'm waiting for something bigger to burst and i definitely think that's going to happen in the next two to three years but i don't want to do anything preemptively and i would like to get a little bit of like historical perspective on it before i start doing stuff because this is a history podcast technically but yeah, that's that's why that's why there's so many streamers. It's Netflix's fault. It's also a little bit more nuanced than that, but that's that's the short answer. Well, I survived a whole year with two full-time jobs. Tuesday will be my one-year anniversary at my job. And the only reason I've been able to do that is because I work from home two days a week, which allows me a cheeky level of multitasking. So as long as that continues and as long as I'm at this level at my job, I expect nothing to change as far as the release schedule here. There are some life event things this year, so maybe I might do like a random week off, but as of now, nothing's changing. Thank you all for a great year. I can't believe how much this little show I make in my little apartment has grown this year. It's super exciting and I could not have done it without each and every one of you. I cannot believe my pandemic hobby has come this far. But for this year, it's time for the Tinsel Factory's fortnightly winter's nap. And the winner is Summer of Soul when the revolution could not be televised. Oh my God, um, thank you. Hey, real quick, real quick. Um, first, I, will, I would like to acknowledge Attica, Ascension, and Flea, and Riding With Fire for their powerful work. Um, it's not lost on me that the story of the Harlem Cultural Festival should have been something that my beautiful mother, my dad, should have taken me to when I was five years old. And I'm, this is such a stunning moment for me right now. Um, but this is not about me. This is about marginalized people in Harlem that needed to heal from pain. And just know that in 2022, you know, this is not just a 1969 story about marginalized people in Harlem. This is a story of, 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 I'm sorry, I'm just overwhelmed right now. Um, Look. (laughs) I'm 
I'm going to get myself together, and I'll thank everyone proper when I get off stage. But on behalf of, of Hulu and Searchlight and Onyx, the beautiful women of Onyx, and, and uh, Concordia and, and Play Action and Balkan and Radical Media, and on behalf of Joseph and... and uh, I'm so happy right now. I could cry. Thank you. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out anyway, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the Buy Me a Coffee. Read is Buy Me a Coffee. I am obsessed with the mocha pot, so I've been making coffee at home. Also, I was too lazy to leave the house this morning because it's very cold in LA. Like, it's a legitimate winter and I'm not happy about it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. Like I've said, this is the last episode of the year, but I'll be back in January with an episode on a thing. Still finalizing that calendar. Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, and I'll see you, well, you'll hear me on the other side. Thanks again for listening, and until 2023, that's a wrap.